Well, in a few years, perhaps a few months, uh, most of you will be graduating and going out into very specific places of Christian ministry. What we don't know is all that you will encounter in your ministries in the decades ahead. Uh, Certainly, if I could go back to when I graduated uh, some decades ago now, I wouldn't have anticipated all the things that that I would encounter. And certainly, um, we know that we're now in a post-Supreme Court ruling regarding same-sex marriage world that you'll enter enter into in North America and in many parts of the world. And certainly, uh, issues like Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn Jenner Uh, These type things are now very much a part of the normal kind of cultural landscape that we now walk into ministry into. And at Asbury, one of our commitments is not simply to prepare you for some like theoretical ministry in a land that doesn't actually exist, but to prepare you for the actual world that you will be entering. Uh, That's really crucial for ministerial training. I have the privilege in my role to meet uh, hundreds, uh, actually I've now met over 1,300 of our alumni, of our 10,500 alumni in the world. I've met a lot of them. And one of the things that we have heard back from them, and this is, by the way, not unique to them, this is true for your generation as well as mine, we're all in a kind of a multi-generational neglect of a biblical doctrine of human sexuality, of marriage, and of the body. And the result of that has been that many of our pastors and leaders around the country are saying to us, you know, we, we know that a lot of these trends are wrong, and we're very concerned about them, but we don't know what to say beyond that we're against them. And I want to say that it is woefully inadequate in today's world for the church to simply be against something and not be able to understand and receive and to embody what the actual biblical vision, which is so compelling that we want to draw people into that is so glorious and so beautiful. One of the things that I have uh, learned about this particular issue is that the Roman Catholic uh, world, generally speaking, is way ahead of us on this particular issue, issues of human sexuality, They've had a lot of conversations about this, which can be very, very helpful to us. I have um, found, uh, in the, in one of the reasons why I love the Wesleyan movement, is Wesley produced what is today called the Great Wesleyan Synthesis. And what that meant was that Wesley was not afraid to borrow from Roman Catholics or Orthodox or, you know, the Puritans. He got on the line. Wesley was a free opportunity borrower. And the reason the Wesleyan in my mind, the reason the Wesleyan message is so powerful is in part because it was so freely able to draw strength. Oh, that's really helpful and insightful. Let's borrow that. Let's incorporate it into our movement. And we were able to incorporate a lot of great strands. And so the Wesleyan movement is both ecumenical and evangelical in one time. I love that about our tradition. So uh, without, you know, I have a lot of objections from Catholicism. Believe me, I'm a convinced Reformation, you know, Wesleyan revivalistic man. But I must say that I have learned so much from Roman Catholics on this issue. And so I want to introduce you in this series is to introduce you particularly to the writings of John Paul II in his Theology of the Body. Between the time of uh, September of 1979 and November of 1984, John Paul II, this is two popes ago, 
uh, can you say those terms like two popes ago? Is that allowed? I don't know. I guess it is. Anyway, uh, John Paul II uh, had weekly, every Wednesday homilies. This is for over five years. He gave weekly homilies, you know, all done in Latin, you know, kind of read, kind of pedantically, read through, but it was uh, eventually translated into uh, other languages. And what you have here is an absolute theological gem. Unbelievable. When I read this, I read this cover to cover last December, and I literally, after every chapter, walked around, my, had my head saying, wow, why hadn't I thought of that? Very, very insightful. And so I thought it'd be really wonderful if we could share this, uh, some of the insights, and do it within kind of a Wesleyan frame for our community here. Now, he did this over five years. I have seven weeks, okay? So what we're doing is I'm going to kind of just see it as kind of more of a scenic overview to invite us into a more uh, deeper study. But I guess the deeper point is, what would happen if we really took time to think through these issues. Not like, I need five reasons why homosexual behavior is wrong. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, we need actually something much deeper, much larger, that looks back and looks at the whole cultural landscape. Because by the way, the landscape includes everything from divorce, to adultery, to fornication, to digital pornography, to same-sex marriage and gender reassignment, and on and on and on it goes. This is a huge cultural landscape issue that is massive. And we tend, in our tradition especially, to atomize it. You know, we're going to look at that issue and like, get five reasons why we think this way about that and four reasons why we're for or against the other. And we don't actually step back and develop a proper theology of human sexuality, the body. All these things are desperately needed in our day. I often joke, and it is a joke, but I just get the point, that uh, whenever there's a new, like, big social, cultural issue that emerges on the scene, like, you know, nuclear armaments or, you know, uh, same-sex issues or, you know, human sexuality problems or, um, you know, migration, uh, global migration, the Pope will call in the Jesuit scholars. He'll say, okay, uh, this is the problem. Um, go out, uh, work on this, come back with a report, and re report back in 20 years. Okay. The, the Protestants will be literally in a car writing down their ideas on the back of an envelope on the way to a major rally to address the issue. I'm caricaturing it, but it actually shows both the strength and weakness of our respective movements, actually. Uh, and so in some ways, because we're evangelical, you know, we want to respond to things quickly and we want to, you know, get the answer, you know. Uh, and so in some ways, this is about learning from a tradition that sometimes takes a long time to kind of come out with something, but in fact, help us to think more deeply about this. These issues, the issue of marriage, divorce, human sexuality, these are, of course, not new issues at all. It goes back all through time, and what is really perhaps new for us is our unpreparedness to know how to answer many of the issues that are placed before us. We have to look at this in a larger landscape. So when we look at Matthew 19, the, the, the gospel text that was read, what we find there is that the, the uh, Pharisees come to Jesus and they pose a question to him. The question is this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Okay, now this is kind of a straightforward question. 
uh, kind of almost invites a yes or no answer. Is it lawful or not? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? In some ways, it kind of mirrors any kind of answer or question posed like that. Is it lawful for a man to marry a man? Is it lawful for a man to decide to become a woman? These are questions. These are the kind of questions people pose to us. All right? So what do we say? What kind of things happen? And so part of the, the, the answer to this is to look very carefully what Jesus actually does in the text, in Matthew 19. Because it reveals our own kind of, in some ways, our own theological sloppiness. <clears throat> and one of the things that Jesus does all through uh, the New Testament, notice how when Jesus is asked questions, you read the answer, you sometimes you think, what? Like, did that answer fit that question? Have you ever had that experience? Read the New Testament, especially John's Gospel. Like, Whoa, what's going on here? But Jesus always looks beyond the question to the questioner. It's one of the great gifts that Jesus gives to us. Jesus looks beyond the question, not about answering a question. It's about actually understanding the questioner and what are the presuppositions and what are the what's the kind of the framework that that questioner brings to Jesus when he asked or she asked the question. So this happens in this text <clears throat> in a marvelous way, and we have to realize that we've been very sloppy about that theologically. I say we're often like the schoolboy who complains that he failed the exam when he never actually studied. All right? The culture has given us an exam, and we have flunked it. Let's just say it. We have flunked it as a rule. So the answer is not to like cast blame or dispersion because actually my generation is the one that unleashed all this horror on you. Uh, we're the ones that thought up all this kind of crazy stuff. So it's now been the church is like playing catch up. So okay, what do we do to really think through these issues? And I'm reminded of a story that uh, John F. Kennedy uh, related when he was in the White House and he instructed someone to plant a certain kind of fruit tree on the, on the lawn of the White House. And one of the, uh, the head gardener came to the president, Mr. President, I just want you to know that that is a beautiful fruit tree, but that particular fruit tree does not bear fruit for 40 years. To which the president said, well, then you better plant this afternoon. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's exactly how I feel. I really believe that it, it may not be we may not see the backside of this issue in our lifetime or our ministry, okay? I, I may not. I'm 56 years old. I may not see the backside of this issue in my lifetime. It doesn't matter. I'm going to sow. I'm going to keep sowing the gospel in this point because I believe the church will reap it at some point. And that's where we stand today. So ultimately, we're hoping to see that when we look at the, uh, the question of Jesus, what he says, and this is what the Pope points out, it was so helpful to me, was that when uh, twice in this text, the sort pericope in, in, in uh, Matthew, Jesus calls us to go back to the beginning. Notice in verse uh, 4 and verse 9, from the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And in verse 9, in referring to the subjects of divorce, he says, from the beginning it was not so. All right? Now, if you go back to the beginning and, re and return to these Genesis texts, and as several excerpts were read for you today, um, and think about how we have kind of mined these texts. If you look at the literature out there by our movements uh, on the first few chapters of Genesis, it is almost overwhelmingly 
about material creation and about issues around evolution. Okay, we have done a lot on this in that area and trying to determine how these texts work with things that we see in the you know, scientific discoveries and all that, which is all wonderful stuff, by the way. But what we've not done much is really look at these texts from the issues of human sexuality and the theology of the body. And this is why, and I know this is like a Twitter moment here, but this is why false teaching is so good for the church. Yes, I said that. False teaching is actually good for the church. Because whenever false teaching emerges and people say, you know, well, we ought to do this, we ought to do that, we get endless this today, all kinds of false teaching by our own you know, leaders and our own denominations. We say, well, hang on a minute. Let's go back to the text again. All right, it forces us to go back, reread texts we've not read or neglected, and then God gives us these wonderful new insights. And this is what's happening in, these, in the theology of the body. It does beautifully. Now, what we do discover, what becomes clear as we read these texts, it was that God created us male and female. These are not merely biological categories. That is one of the most important things for Christians to get. And by the way, this is, these, these, the, the, these meditations are mostly about capturing the biblical message for Christians. Now, we're going to talk a few times about important links to larger kind of social, cultural arguments that may be made, maybe, all right, in certain cases. But right now we're trying to recapture us. We've got to have, have clarity on this amongst the people of God who accept the word of God. So anyway, you'll find that these are not merely functional categories, but to be man or to be a woman is enfleshed realities which are deeply embedded in theological realities, all right? Now that becomes very, very important as the whole thing is explored. And Jesus clearly, uh, from his response, says, says that's what, what's going on. That is the dynamic that's happening here, what's been missed. Because the problem we face today is the problem is actually much bigger than we realize. Like the problem is not that we have not had a clever enough answer to stop the whole culture going to same-sex marriage or gender reassignment. That is not our problem. Our problem is actually looking back and seeing the larger issues. The, 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 the culture has a certain definition of marriage, an idea of what marriage is, that is promulgated through a lot of ways in the media, the film industry, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at the, the marriage, how it's understood in our culture, including all the recent conversations, even the Supreme Court, what is said in the rulings, is that the marriage is basically for, basically, promote companionship, happiness, sexual fulfillment, and of course, economic efficiency. That's what the marriage is. Marriage is a commodity in our society. Now, the church, at least the last 40 years, has largely adopted that. We too think marriage is about personal happiness, you know, social stability, companionship, sexual fulfillment, etc. That's what we think too. Now, once you accept the cultural definition of marriage, then you're automatically, you're off the platform right there. There's no way, there's no possible way to defend against any potential marriage relationships that may come along. We've just got seen the beginning of it, of course, but there's no end to that. 
But if we capture the deeper vision that marriage is about reflecting the Trinity, the sacramental nature of the body, us being image bearers, not just in our spirits, but our very physicality, the power of self-donation, the power of joining God as being co-creators with God in the reproducibility of children, the very idea that our bodies are laying the foundation for the future incarnation, none of that is widely understood in our, in the, in the, I mean, maybe you, yes, understand that, but in terms of the larger church culture that we will be pastoring and leading in the years to come, they don't have that. They are basically operating from a world's cultural perspective on marriage. And that, therefore, we have to address the larger issue. Once we accept the wider cultural, social, biological, pragmatic, consumeristic view, then, of course, marriage is something that you have to get returns on. It's a commodity in our culture. Therefore, if you're not getting the right emotional returns, you discard it. And you go buy a new one. That's, that's what a co commodity culture does. That's the long way from covenant and all of the language that we find in the scriptures. So, for example, we often describe a sacrament in our tradition as an outward sign of an inward and spiritual gift or grace. But then we limit ourselves, traditionally, I'm thinking Protestants as a whole, not so much Wesleyans, but Protestants as a whole, to say, yeah, but sacraments, <coughs> there are only two, Christ instituted them, you know, your baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the sacraments. One is that, that John Paul II does, <coughs> that Wesley picked up on, was say, wait a minute, are there not other means of grace? Uh, praise God for sacraments. Praise God for baptism. Christ did institute those. But think about this theologically. What if the means of grace flowed from the whole Trinity? What if the Father issued sacraments and the Son and the Holy Spirit? What if the whole means of grace is actually much broader than we thought. This is precisely what Wesley calls us to with his means of grace. Could, in fact, the body itself be a form of a sacrament, an outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace? Marriage could perhaps be the primordial sacrament. We'll explore that more fully in uh, part five of this series. But just as a kind of a groundwork, let's at least... Think about the idea that your physical body itself is a kind of sacrament. Okay, it's, a, it's a means of grace. In Genesis, what distinguishes us is the fact that we have been given the image of God. That's in Genesis 1.27. And then he breathed into us, Genesis 2.7. That's not done with the animals. So we are bodily a living sacrament in his image and with his breath into us. And this is ultimately fulfilled in the incarnation and in the, uh, the, the community of the church. But the body, your body, by the way, it doesn't matter if your body is too fat, too thin, too, what, too whatever, whatever, whatever people talk about. It has nothing to do with it. Your body as it is, God loves it. He loves your body. He loves everything about your body. Don't worry about your body. It's the fact that you have one. If someone complains about your body, say, but I have one. That's the biblical response. Hallelujah, I've got a body. I can, you know, I can grab a hold of mine at times over here. That's okay. There's more of me to love, all right? 
But think about it. The body is the bridge between theology and anthropology. It is the body. Without the physicality of the body, there are no means of grace. Think about it. You baptize a body. You take Eucharist into your body. You confess Christ with your lips. You lay hands on the sick and you anoint them with oil. When you're set apart from ministry, many of you will be ordained through the laying on of hands on your body. Even scripture is read with our eyes or heard with our ears. Only the body can make the invisible visible. There is no greater sacrament, really, called a means of grace, if you will, than the human body. Your body, that's why God designed it that way, because he's already preparing for the incarnation, the perfect way for God to step into the world. It's not just true in the incarnation, it's true even now. God still steps into this world through means of grace in your body and through your body. Thanks be to God, you have a body. It's just so close to us, we can easily miss it. So John Paul II calls us to go back to the beginning, and one of the other great insights he brings is the fact that we have not properly taken time to look at the pre-fallen Adam. Now, if you look at our theological constructs, mostly they revolve around a two-atom structure. You know, the fallen Adam has fallen and brought all of this, you know, horrific sin, death, and, and destruction onto us. Christ comes the second Adam, and Christ redeems the world through the second Adam. Paul develops his Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. But here in Genesis 19, I mean in, in Matthew 19, Christ calls us to remember the pre-fallen Adam. Now, one of the criticisms of evangelical theology, though to be fair, this is where again I think Wesleyan theology has been a great pushback. But traditionally, and we're so influenced by popular evangelicalism, we have fallen into this ourselves at times, have been charged with our Bibles actually start with Genesis 3 and end with Revelation 20. In other words, they go from fall to judgment. That's kind of like our narrative. And one of the, one of the great pushbacks is that actually, about our, our hymn today, by the way, beautifully illustrated that from Charles Wesley, Bell actually is there's two chapters before three, and there's two after Revelation 20. It goes from creation to new creation. So there's a lot in the Bible before the fall that we have to derive. In fact, Jesus quotes all these texts. Every one of them are pre-fall texts. All right? So as we once again get back into looking at the pre-fallen Adam, and the fact that Jesus quotes it in a post-fallen world is really important. Because there's a tendency to think, well, anything that was set up before the fall has all been like just dashed to the ground. It's all been broken and scattered, and there's nothing left. And now we're just, you know, we're in our we're in our fallen misery. Okay, I got that. But the fact that Jesus keeps saying to the Pharisees, from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning it was not so. What Jesus is saying is, is that the original design of God's plan for marriage and for human sexuality and for the body remains intact even in a post-fallen world. You get that? In other words, okay, M Moses had hardness of heart. There are endless social cultural issues that arise and cloud the issue, and there are endless examples of human sinfulness 
But through it all, Jesus cuts through all the fog and says, yes, 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 I get that, I understand that, I know, I know that, but from the beginning it was not so. So Jesus calls us back, and indeed he summons us back to remember the pre-fallen Adam and Eve, remember God's original design and God's original intent, and it's very, very important that we remember this. And one of the most important lines, I hope that you, which is about the title of this homily, is that you can remember from time to time to say is, yes, but from the beginning it was not so. That's Jesus' reply. It's a great reply to remember. The second part of the um, homilies I want to, early homilies I want to point out here is the, the early, what he calls the, the solitude of man in the original creational uh, display. What happens is Adam is created, and then in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, Adam is allowed to name all the animals. They're brought to him one by one. He names them. Okay, so this is, again, God drawing Adam into his own life. This is what, this is like a divine prerogative that God gives to Adam. Adam brings the animals, he names them, and part of what happens is there is, quote, none suitable found for him. Now, the narrative that we mostly rehearse at that point is to say, okay, right, this is about Adam needing an Eve. Adam, a man needs a woman, a woman needs a man. And that's certainly true in this respect that God created women, uh, women for men, men for women. But the point is actually much deeper than that. It's Adam recognizing his own solitude and the need for communion ultimate with God. All right, so there's a solitude. There's, a, there's something inside of us that God has put in the creational design that is unsatisfied apart from the deeper communion with God and with others. Now, this is possible because the whole of creation is an overflow of the Trinity, the triune God. God has perfect fellowship with himself. He, unite, he invites us into that fellowship. Now, this is where Islam, this is a point, Islam makes, this is where they have a fault line at the threshold of Islamic theology. They reject the Trinity, and therefore they're left with a solitude God. They're called the doctrine of Tawhid, okay? It means the doctrine of God's absolute oneness. No Trinitarian distinctions, no knowingness within the Godhead. And why is that important? That is important because that means God does not even know himself because there's no other that can know. Okay, in the Trinity, God knows himself. God has communion within himself. He invites us into the colloquy and the beauty of that relationship. Okay, in Islam... God can't, Allah doesn't do that. He can't do that. So Allah can only reveal his will to you. And because he only gives his will to you, the only response is for you to obey him. That's what it means to be a Muslim, one who obeys. So essentially, as they themselves said, Al-Ghazali said, you know, Allah does not reveal himself. He only reveals his will. One of their greatest theologians. Okay, in the gospel, that is not at all the perspective here. God is revealing himself to Adam and calling Adam into his inner life, and of which the, the whole marriage and the bringing together man and woman, of which we're all recipients, we're all children of that, Adam, Eve is taken out of Adam, and then out of Eve comes the next Adam, you see? They both have man or life flowing from them. We're all recipients of that. We're all brought into that wonderful colloquy. So we also learn, as it develops, what it means to be image bearers, and again, from the beginning, here is God giving Adam real choices to make. 
And this is where we also depart from our culture. Our culture thinks that freedom means deciding for yourself what you want to do. You can do anything. Justice Kennedy, our justice of the Supreme Court, made the following statement in one of his rulings. I'm quoting here. Justice Kennedy, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Okay, now that is a massive understanding of human life as complete, disconnected autonomy, unconnected to any even common good, much less anything connected to the triune God. In the garden, we are given the opportunity not simply to decide what is good and evil, but to choose between what is good and evil. And that dignity is given to us to this day. That's also part of the Wesleyan vision, by the way. The freed will to decide whether you will choose to follow what is good or to follow what is evil. Not to decide what is good or evil, but whether you will follow it or not. The beautiful thing about that is, is by deciding that, you can, that makes possibility of true love and communion with God. So Adam and Eve are brought into that possibility of fellowship and communion with God through the, the beautiful creation of man and woman, that the bodies become the place of decision-making actually into their bodies. They could take the, the fruit or not take the fruit, eat it or not, touch it or not. So the result was they did. And the result was, of course, what we now call the fall, solitude, autonomy, and aloneness. And C.S. Lewis masterfully pictures this in his wonderful allegory, The Great Divorce. If you recall, in The Great Divorce, hell is a gray town. Those who go there, notice what he says in that, in that book, they lose the solidity of their bodies. That's what hell is. Remember, if you don't remember the book, the, uh, the grass is so hard they can't walk on it. The, a leaf is so heavy they can't even pick it up because they've lost the solidity of their bodies. It's not just spirits going to be with God. It's something about our bodies that God redeems wholly and fully. And when you go into the gray town, every house is moving farther and farther apart. Every house is thousands of miles from every other house. You're living in complete solitude and aloneness. And then yet, as it turns out at the end of the book, hell, after all is said and done, is just a tiny speck of dust. And as, as N.T. Wright has pointed out, we have made, we've made heaven and hell like two ontological realities of the same you know, moment and size and force. Like we're, like we're all closet Zoroastrians. Well, as image bearers, Adam and Eve were granted moral weight in the universe. And we find and discover there are actually ethical boundaries set up in the very nature of creation itself. The word for glory is the word for weight in the Old Testament. And therefore, our very physicality carries with ethical boundaries, which allows us to either share in God's weight or God's glory, or distance ourselves from God's glory and therefore become weightless bodiless, eventually having no weight of glory. So what have we learned in the first homily? 
Well, we've learned, first of all, we have a lot of theological homework to do. If this sounds like boring and overly theological and not like pragmatic enough, what are the three things I need to know? Then I want to tell you, that is not the solution. We have to do more serious reflection, and it's going to take us years to be on top of this issue. We're just pointing to the few of the contours. Two, we've been called to go back and re-examine the original design, which remains intact. Let's take more time to look at Adam, not just as a fallen one, or Eve as the fallen one, but to re-look at Adam and Eve in the resplendence, glory, of their initial creation. Third, we've been called to understand our own solitude. So much of our kind of the sin management of our own evangelical world is not acknowledging the solitude that all of us have that can only be found in the presence of the triune God. Fourthly, we're hopefully beginning to see a deeper insight in what it means to be image bearers called to make real choices within the moral framework set forth at the dawn of creation. And finally, we've been given real choices to participate in God's glory, to enter into his weightiness. And this is a wonderful thing that happens through the body as the very means by which God reveals himself to us. Thanks be to God. Amen.